During the Civil War, Frederick Douglass gave a speech entitled Negroes and the National War Effort. As he addressed the audience at National Hall in Philadelphia, he argued, Once let the black man get upon his person the brass letter U.S. Let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, and there is no power on earth which can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship in the United States. Douglas's statement was a response to the fact that black men had been barred from military service and a call to duty now that Abraham Lincoln had allowed black enlistment in the Union Army. But it also was a call for the racial equality and equal rights that Frederick Douglass believed black military service would bring. It must have seemed that Douglass was too optimistic or just plain wrong about the connection between service and rights. The Union Army gladly began accepting black soldiers in 1863, but equality was not part of the deal. Black soldiers were paid $10 each compared to the $13 white soldiers earned. And while white soldiers were given an extra $3 for uniform needs, black soldiers had the same amount deducted from their paycheck. And the inequity didn't stop there. Only white men were allowed to be commissioned as officers. African-American leaders around the country and the soldiers themselves worked simultaneously to protest inequity in the military while bringing victory to the Union. And black soldiers had a big impact on the Union war effort. By the end of the war, about 180,000 black soldiers had served. At battles like Fort Wagner, you probably remember that one from the movie Glory, the heroism of these men invigorated the black movement for citizenship rights. During the 1864 National Convention of Colored Men, which was attended by the likes of Henry Highland Garnett as well as Frederick Douglass, abolitionist John S. Rock Esquire of Massachusetts spoke about black military service. He acknowledged that it had not always paid the dividends they expected, explaining, Many of our grandfathers fought in the revolution, and they thought they were fighting for liberty, but they made a sad mistake. And we are now obliged to fight those battles over again, and I hope, this time, to a better purpose. We are all loyal. Why are we not treated as friends? This nation spurned our offers to rally around it for two long years, and then, without any guarantees, called upon us at a time when the loyal white men of the North hesitated. We buried the terrible outrages of the past and came magnanimously and gallantly forward. In the heroism displayed at Milliken's Bend, Port Hudson, Fort Wagner, Olusti, in the battles now going on before Richmond and everywhere where our men have faced the foe, they have covered themselves all over with glory. They have nobly written with their blood the declaration of their right to have their names recorded on the pages of history among the true patriots of the American Revolution for Liberty. John S. Rock also linked heroism in war to the pursuit of equality in peacetime. All we ask is equal opportunities and equal rights. This is what our brave men are fighting for. They have not gone to the battlefield for the sake of killing and being killed, but they are fighting for liberty and equality. We ask the same for the black man that is asked for the white man. Nothing more and nothing less. Black soldiers and radical Republicans also made calls for black citizenship rights. Wendell Phillips of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society argued that black men had an equal share with the white race in the management of the political institutions for which he is required to fight and bleed. And Lincoln himself voiced his support several times during the war for some form of black enfranchisement. In his last public speech, Lincoln addressed black citizenship rights, saying, I would myself prefer that it were now conferred on the very intelligent and on those who serve our cause as soldiers. Of course, Lincoln did not live long enough to see that plan through. Instead, black voting rights would be a product of congressional reconstruction, secured by the 15th Amendment. So why, you ask? Are we talking about the Civil War when this episode is about black service in 20th century world wars? It's because there is a long legacy of black men using military service as a claim for civil and political equality. And there is also a long legacy of being obliged to fight those battles again. Unfortunately, the promise of suffrage and civil rights, those rights that the blood of black soldiers seemed to have secured, were short-lived after the Civil War. 
the dismantling of Reconstruction, and the end of federal oversight of elections in southern states led to the racial violence and voter suppression of Jim Crow. So as Black men volunteered or were drafted in 20th century world wars, for the most part, they faced similar questions and had many of the same goals as those Civil War soldiers. I'm Bethany J, and this is Teaching Hard History. We're a production of Learning for Justice, the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center. This season, we're offering a detailed look at how to teach the history of Jim Crow, starting with Reconstruction. In each episode, we explore a different topic, walking you through historical concepts, raising questions for discussion, suggesting useful source material, and offering practical classroom exercises. African Americans have served in every major conflict since the Revolution, despite segregation and resistance to those strides towards equality. In this episode, we examine the complicated relationship between military service and the Black freedom struggle. Historian Adrian Lentz-Smith spoke with my co-host Hassan Kwame Jeffries about the diverse stories of servicemen and women in World War I. They discussed the transformational impact of their experiences overseas, the backlash they faced at home, and how their service bolstered efforts to dismantle Jim Crow. I'm so glad you can join us. Let's get started. I am really excited to welcome to the Teaching Hard History Podcast, Dr. Adrian Lentz-Smith. Adrian, I'm so glad that you could join us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You know, one of the central themes in the American experience, in the African-American experience, in the courses that we teach on American history is the centrality of conflict, uh, war. Um, and certainly during the Jim Crow era, uh, we have two major wars, World War I and, and, and World War II. And African-Americans play a major role uh, in those conflicts, and those conflicts play a major role in the lives of African-Americans. But the wars during the Jim Crow era certainly weren't the first wars that African-Americans participated in. Uh, could you could you share a little bit uh, about the longer history, a, l- a little background, if you will, on African-American participation in American conflicts? Sure. African-Americans have been involved in every major war in American history and have, in fact, been part of the fight for American independence, democracy, freedom, whatever you want to call it, since the colonial period, right? So Crispus Attucks Mm. was one of the first people to give their blood in the cause of American independence, and he was Black. And you go from Crispus Attucks through the... um, American Revolution, through the War of 1812, forward and forward, and so forth and so on. African Americans have been a part of every war. Um, Their participation in those wars have been largely under-narrated and undervalued. And their experience in most of those wars time and time again was of giving something to the cause of American democracy, freedom, security that the black community did not get back in return. What is motivating African-Americans to take up arms in defense of the United States? And, And does that change over time from the revolutionary era to World War One? It does. I mean, so some... As with all questions in history, some things change and some things remain relatively Mm -hmm. (laughs) consistent, right? Um, I think in the early period, in the the making of the thing that we will end up calling America, people fight for a wide variety of reasons. And this is true, like a job is a job. And sometimes you fight because it's available and it's a thing to do. There are people who fight in service to the idealized, the abstracted American project, but People are literally fighting during the Civil War for freedom, for their freedom and that of their families. And Black soldier service was one way to 
um, force the issue of emancipation to make a claim on um, the American state and nation and to say, we've given our lives, we have been far more loyal to this thing that we call America than the folks who would hold us in bondage. And in the Civil War, that pays off. And I think what happens in subsequent wars time and time again is that people are looking for the compact to work in much the same way, even aware of the absurdity and the awfulness that they are having to do this yet again and yet again and yet again. I think that folks in the moment have an expectation, right? African-Americans, their allies, have an expectation that military service will bring expanded access and acceptance. But by and large, Black military service incites the same people who are opposed to other manifestations of kind of Black people participating in public life of any kind. If if we zero in on this um, the period between after the Civil War to World War One. What is the what's the driving assumption about military service specifically that leads black folk to believe or to hope that it will provide access to this promise? as opposed to something else? Is there something very specific going on in sort of the American mind that says, ha, if you do this in war, this then becomes the reward? So, and and not just in war, but in military service in general, right? There is mm. a standing army and there are not a lot, but you know, four black units in the standing army. So this is both about the way that black folks serve in state militias, and then it's about how they serve in the federal army. In wartime, like in the Spanish-American, you know, and Philippine wars. And in all of those, there is a rhetorical linking between black soldiering, manhood, and citizenship that not just Black folks are doing, right? The, mm. the way that Americans, broadly speaking, talk about what it means to be a soldier bounds those three things up deeply together. And it is hard to have someone act as a soldier without seeding the seeding some understanding of them as men in this, you know, early 20th century way that is about valor and courage and duty and all of those things. And it's also hard for folks not to put those two associations together and say, and this is the model of what it looks like to be fit for citizenship. So much so that in the 1890s and early 1900s, when Southern legislatures are stripping African-Americans of their citizenship rights. You also see them disbanding state black state militias by and large. There are a few by the time we get to 1917, but not very many. And they do it and they will say as much that they do it because you can't have people in the militia who are not treated like citizens and even more they're aware that black folks in military service will expect themselves to be treated like citizens. While African-Americans are uh, soldiering for citizenship, if you will, and for the recognition of their rights and to secure um, you know, freedom in, in a broadly conceived way, especially after emancipation, right? Like, okay, we, we've ended slavery, but we're going to continue in this project because it's, you know, the citizenship rights that we have to secure, you know, they're also engaged as agents of American empire. And I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking as a kid hearing stories about the Buffalo soldiers and it was like, yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. And then you get a little older and it's like, Oh wait, that's what they were doing out west, right? With participating in, in, in land theft and genocide. It's like so. Whether it's in you know 
out west or in the Philippines? Uh, what was what, what was going on there? And how do we make sense of it? I mean, you're right. We can talk about the Indian Wars. We can talk about the um, Buffalo Soldiers or the, you know, standing the sort of four, the four units in the regular army as the, the kind of ground troops of American empire in the continental West and mm-hmm. then in the, in the Pacific. The Indian Wars and the Civil War overlap. And Black soldiers who become part of the the Union Army find themselves actually part of those Indian wars. And as we develop these four standing army units, the um, 24th and 25th infantries and the 9th and 10th cavalries, the, the Buffalo soldiers, they become really important and active parts of, um, of pursuing... Um, and and subduing um, Native Americans. And it could be that some soldiers were troubled by that and it gave them pause. It could also be the case that some people were so bound up in the kind of mainstream imagination of the American project that they had no pause at all. Mm. So they're doing the work of of you know what we would have called in a in a older time that actually sort of hides the the settler colonialism of it all winning the west right and then kept keeping it one um which is really it's the work of american empire right it's the work of american expansion it's the work of american empire and it's the same work that they'll end up many of them will end up doing in the in the wars of the 1890s and into the early eight, in the early 1900s that we have the Spanish American war Spanish American Cuban wars and then the Philippine wars which all sort of come of a piece what happens when you know Spain concedes the Philippines to the United States is that folks in the Philippines who'd been fighting a war for independence then pivot to fight against Americans. And so when black Americans are fighting that war and in many ways experiencing the benefits of being um, kind of empowered and ferocious and manly in this space, they are again doing the work of American empire, right? Americans will end up staying in the Philippines um, for quite some time with black soldiers, with Buffalo soldiers, um, an important part of that that, um, policing force and so they really are, in many ways, experiencing the the kind of bump in status and prestige that comes with with a certain kind of imperialism or or sort of colonial presence. Willard Gatewood's wonderful book of letters from black soldiers in 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 that war, what Smoked Yankees. Smoked Yankees has accounts of people who are all over the spectrum, right? So it's some of them are excited because they have an elevation in status and stature that comes from being the colonial force, right? Like they're mm-hmm. the ones with the power and the money and they get treated in ways that they're not going to get treated at home precisely because in those ladders of like hierarchy and subordination, they're occup- they're for the first time occupying, you know, a, a higher rung. That's not solidarity. That's not thinking about like, we are people who are somehow subject to the same like racial logics, logic suffering under power, they're thinking, look where we are, right? Mm-hmm. There's this really tricky kind of irony and web in which black soldiers are pursuing citizenship through military service. They're pursuing an end to white racial democracy or maybe even racialized democracy overall, but they're doing it in such a way by participating in the very imperial system that is going to intensify and strengthen the racial logics that manifest in American empire. But then there are people like Donald Fagan who actually deserts and goes over 
to the um, the side of of sort of Filipino nationalists, right? And who I think ends up getting caught and and executed. But he sees the critique and acts on it. But we know his name, Fagan's name specifically, because he tends to be the exception as opposed to the rule. Mm. This is Teaching Hard History, and I'm Bethany J. We prepare detailed show notes for each episode of this podcast so that you can use what you learn here in the classroom. You'll find relevant resources as well as a full transcript complete with links to materials mentioned by our guests. You can find them at learningforjustice.org slash podcasts. Now let's return to Hassan's conversation with Adrian Lentz-Smith. You know, once America gets involved in World War One, close to 400,000, 386,000 African-Americans will have some kind of wartime military experience. And about half of those, 200,000, will go abroad with the American Expeditionary Forces. What are the experiences of African-Americans during World War One? Well, so... Of the 200,000 who go abroad with the AEF, 160,000 of them are in labor battalions, which means that they're doing work like stevedoring, building roads, building railroads, that sort of thing. Um, And then 40,000 of them, or roughly 40,000 of them, are combat troops. And so for the folks who are in labor battalions, a lot of the experience is just of like, like crushing hard work and not a lot of glory. For the folks who are in the combat troops, you know, some see a little combat, some see a great deal of combat. The members of the 93rd, which include the handful of Black National Guard units that have been federalized, are actually given over to the French um, to French command for the duration of the war because the French were woefully short on men and just begged for someone, and this is who the the U.S. was willing to give up. They were incredibly well decorated by the French military because the French were willing to acknowledge um, Black military accomplishments in a way that the Americans were not. But those decorations bespeak a great deal of suffering and trauma and injury, even as they speak to courage and heroism. Often when you look at primary sources, people writing, you know, diaries about their service or letters home or those wonderful digitized surveys that the Library of Virginia has about soldiers' experiences, you see folks even folks who are proud of themselves and in no way regret um, their military service, who would do it again, you see those folks willing to talk about or sometimes hint at the toll that that service also took on them, the trauma that soldiers experienced. And I think it's important for us to understand that when people say that they're willing to make this sacrifice for the nation or for their race or for their community or sort of whatever they're doing it for, that it is no small sacrifice um, and that it hurts them. And some of those folks will heal from their hurt, that hurt and some won't. The 369th, which had been the 15th New York National Guard, was under fire for something like 190 days, you know, the longest of any American unit. The 369th, those are the Harlem Hellfighters, no? Those are the Harlem Hellfighters, although um, historians Jeff Salmon, or um, yeah, Jeff Salmons and, and John Morrow will tell you that they were more correctly called Harlem's Rattlers. But I think then as now, the Hellfighters was a catchier name and that's what stuck, right? So they're the most famous black unit of World War I. They're the one with the incredible band that is led by James Reese Europe, who is both a um, musician and composer and lieutenant in the army. So he had to shift between leading this band and actually fighting. And they, you know, they produce probably the most famous story of, of black combat in this period, which is the story of Henry Johnson and Needham Roberts, who are two guys out on patrol who end up fighting off an incursion of attacking German 
um, soldiers, just the two of them. And after Roberts is wounded, it's really just Henry Johnson alone, right? First with gun, and then when his gun gives out, when his bullets give out, hitting them with the gun, and then when the gun breaks, pulling out a knife, right? Um, That story is broadcast everywhere. He's incredibly celebrated, but I think it's also very indicative of something of the Black experience with the military, because he's celebrated for a minute, and then he's forgotten, and then he dies in poverty, and his story's gone until the 1970s or 80s. Mm. I think one of the reasons that the 369th is as famous as it is, it's both because of what they accomplished and what they did, but it's also because there are, there were folks in that unit who leave a trace, who were either famous before they went in or who do something that let us see what, what the 369th did. Folks who were involved in the 369th have written memoirs from Noble Sissel, who was sort of... Um, James Reese Europe's right-hand man, and both as a musician, but then very close to him also in the 369th, to Arthur Little, who was a white officer, but one who appreciated what what his men could do. James Reese Europe and Noble Sissel, the musicians, whose music that they write, songs about the war, the kind of use of the syncopated sort of beat to talk about no man's land, right? Like, that's both striking to people in the time and fun to teach with now. And then there are people like Horace Pippin, who was not um, famous going into, into World War I, who, you know, was just a working guy who joins the 15th New York National Guard, um, but who was an artist. And so he both keeps a diary that tells you a little bit about what it was like to be under fire for so long, he draws sketches in his notebook. So it's like, you know, you can see pictures of them sitting in their bunks or what have you. And when he comes, um, when he comes out of the war, he paints and paints and paints, right? He says that the war sort of like put the art in me or, you know, some quote like that. And his material, some of it is in like the Philadelphia Museum of Art, some very striking some very striking paintings, but his World War I diary is at the Smithsonian and digitized. So I often pull that up to teach with. 1915, 1916, the, the color line uh, is certainly well-established. And anything that is going to happen militarily is going to be racially segregated. It's something that you could point to um, to to explore the ways in which African-Americans are debating what to do about segregation in the military. Yeah, the most, I think the most prominent example, and in some ways, you know, the one where I'm not sure that if I were a person sitting around in 1917, I'm, I don't know where I would come down. The sort of the, the most outstanding example of folks debating how to respond to deal with and or accommodate segregation in the military comes with a debate over an officer's training camp, right? African-Americans want there to be black officers. The standard assumption on the part of military leadership and of the Wilson administration, broadly speaking, is that like, even if you're going to have black troops, you should have white officers And they often say, and if we're going to have white officers, it should really be white Southerners who oversee black troops because they know how to handle them, right? Um, And so pulling again on the long histories of, um, if not coerced, deeply ill-treated labor and the assumption that you get people to do things um, through maltreatment. Um, And so black folks are like, okay, all of that sounds terrible. And what we want and what we deserve are black officers in charge of, of black troops. If that's to happen, if the army is going to, going to do that, then they say, okay, fine, we'll give you a segregated officer's training camp. And it becomes a dilemma W.E.B. Du Bois writes an article in The Crisis where it's basically like, what do we do? Do we hold the line and then have no officers? Do we 
compromise on this and reinforce this idea that segregation is acceptable. Like, you know, and then he comes down and eventually um, the community, broadly speaking, comes down on, on the side of, okay, if it means, uh, you know, our sort of like consistency of position and no officers or a segregated camp and officers will take the segregated camp, but know that we don't like it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how should we explore the experiences of African-American women during this time. I'm a sucker for memoirs. And so memoirs of black women who were in France with the AEF, the most famous of which, which is in the public domain, so you can um, search for it on the interwebs, is two two colored women with the American Expeditionary Forces by... Catherine M. Johnson and Addie Hunton. You know, what they say is that they realized no one was going to tell this story if they didn't, you know, or, or tell it fairly. And so they gathered a memoir that is both about black soldiers, but about what they were doing as YMCA volunteers on behalf of black soldiers. And I love that book. I love that book because it has a kind of like sensitive, like a sort of heartbroken admiration for the willingness of soldiers in the AEF to continue doing what they were supposed to do in the face of all kinds of maltreatment. So one of the things that makes World War I interesting from the perspective of African-American history, World War I is one of the first mass experiences of being out in the world and experiencing something beyond what you know, right? Like, you know, you've had black travelers for a very long time. You've had transnational networks through things like the AME church or folks who were missionaries. But this is like a wide cross section of folks and they're seeing things with their own eyes that they may or may not have ever heard about or read about, but this is like immediate and it's visceral and it's like eye popping, right? Um, For someone who never meant to go further from Monroe, Louisiana than say Rayville, Louisiana, to suddenly find yourself in Saint-Nazaire or Marseille or, you know, on the Western front somewhere and sort of to see like racial dynamics and logics playing out in a way that like doesn't look like how they played out where you are. I mean, Katherine Johnson tells a story of sitting on a streetcar and a tirailleur, so a Senegalese soldier um, boards and a white French woman not only gives up her seat, but kisses his hand, right? Like she's saying, thank you. Like, thank you, what you for what you've done to France and sort of honoring him. And Francis jo- and, and Catherine Johnson writes like, well, if that w- had happened in the US, someone would have stuck a bomb under the car, right? Like the very just kind of, I don't know what the dynamics are that are here, but they are not the ones that I'm used to. And African-American men have emotional relationships, friendships, sometimes sexual relationships, sometimes sexual transactions with French women who are often white. And the fact that they can break something that is such a taboo as to mean death where they come from and, you know, can just be sort of a thing that people do where they are is also really mind boggling, right? So it starts making them think about the ways that Jim Crow is specific or particular to their parts of the US, right? The way that they've experienced racism and racial interactions is a product of their local contexts, right? Or, and they look, you know, across a cafe and they see like, again, a tirailleur or a Moroccan soldier or, you know, a sort of like Indo-Chinese laborer, what have you. And they think like, all right, I don't really know what that person's about, but here they are. And here I am. And we're all like these people of color sitting around. Do we have any kinship or connection? 
One of the things that's very hard for soldiers who were overseas in World War One is that they're getting news from home, right? Like they know what's happening back home. And in this moment, domestically, white racial violence is spiking. Two things bring about the escalation in racial violence. One is the Great Migration. So this mass demographic shift of Black folks out of Southern, like sort of rural areas into Southern cities and then into Northern cities, right? And that great sort of migration and demographic shift, putting tensions on housing, competition over labor, um, inciting what may or may not have been more um, latent racial antagonisms in places that folks move to, like Chicago or East St. Louis, Illinois, or um, Washington, D.C., even all kinds of places, right? So that's part of it. And then the other part of it is making sure that this push for increased civil and human rights doesn't go anywhere. A lot of that escalation and violence is saying to people, let me show you all of the ways in which you're continuing to like try to pursue change is only going to bring you pain. Mm. Mm. Right. So as, and even before Many folks ship off with the AEF. We see the East St. Louis, what we call the East St. Louis race riot, which is more akin to uh, the kinds of attacks on folks in Eastern European ghettos, right, to pogroms. Um, And East St. Louis was the worst incident, worst riot in U.S. history up to that point. And not long after East St. Louis and in some ways as the kind of opening salvo of the war that tells that does not bode well for black soldiering we see the Houston mutiny in in late summer when members of the 24th infantry who've been sent down to guard the building of a camp clash over and over again with white Houstonians who are very concerned about these outside Negroes who have too much sense of their own consequence, who are career military, right? Like white Houstonians are trying to tamp down the 24th sense of their own consequence because they see the 24th as potential outside agitators for their black communities. There are a number of small scale um, conflicts that then blow up when uh, two white policemen attack a black woman um, in front of members of the 24th who try to intervene and who are then beat up by those same, by those same policemen. That day ends with a small subset of black soldiers marching on the town to go out and, and get the policemen who who instigated all of the mess in the first place. It's a horrific tragedy. I mean, one of those policemen is killed in the fight, but most of the folks who are hurt are civilians who have nothing to do with it. A number of black soldiers are arrested, 13 of them um, court-martialed and hanged um, almost immediately with before anybody even knew that their court-martial was over. Like, it's this terrible, terrible, terrible mess um, that and a terrible tragedy that kind of points to the dilemmas, contradictions and heartbreak of the whole, of the whole military experience in this period. But then there are other horrors, right? Like one of the most famous incidents in, in during the war prior to the red summer of 1919 is the lynching of Mary Turner in in South Georgia, a woman who's lynched basically for continuing to speak out about the murder of other black folks in her community. Um, not before, like not, not so many days before, um, Turner is killed viciously, um, and by a large public mob, she is pregnant. And so to try to fight, a war that's supposed to that that will be traumatic anyway, right? The worst 
the worst conflict in terms of casualties and 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 emotional toll that perhaps the you know folks had seen in modern times to try to do that while knowing that all of this is happening like what are you fighting for at that point learning for justice has a special opportunity just for educators after listening to this episode you can earn a certificate for 1 hour of professional development all you have to do is go to learningforjustice.org slash podcast PD. PD for professional development. That's podcast PD, all one word. Then enter the unique code word for this episode, enlistment, all lowercase. You'll also find a link in the show notes. It's a great way to get even more out of teaching hard history. How are African-American former soldiers treated when they return. There's pride within black communities about black soldiering. Outside of their communities, there's a, a huge amount of hostility to even the uniform. Mm. You know, I write in, in my book, Freedom Struggles, about a guy, Ely Green, who's a, who was a chauffeur who went and was a stevedore in, in San Nazaire and came back and... Not only do folks in his small Texas town react against his military uniform, at some point they get so upset about uniforms that they're basically like, stop using, wearing your limo driver's uniform, right? Like, mm. we, don't, we don't want to see you anything. In fact, we want you to leave. The very fact of you, the very fact of where you've been and who you think you are because of it is dangerous to us. And he's not anomalous. In that terrible summer of 1919, there are numerous lynchings of Black soldiers, and there are, some of those are Black soldiers in uniform. Does that response from white Southerners, white Americans, but white Southerners specifically, does that change attitudes of African Americans who thought fighting in the war was would be a largely productive thing? Yeah, it does. I think it it shifts the primary strategy of many African Americans who are actively thinking about how you pursue citizenship and freedom rights. So, you know, there's a lot of writing in the lead up to the war among pro-war Black folks, so in kind of middle class, you know, sort of black periodicals, they're basically like, this is our moment to prove, prove what we can do, right? Or we can think back to the famous editorial by Du Bois, where he writes close ranks, right? Like, we're going to set aside our special grievances, we don't do this happily, but we do it willingly. Um, and we're going to go and we're going to sort of help you. And when this is over, we'll come back and and try to get what we deserve. You know, so it's all kinds of like demonstrating that you're worthy and then asking for something afterwards. And when they get to the end of the war and they realize that whatever it is that they accomplished, one would be denied, right? So just as much as there are folks writing memoirs about what black soldiers did, there are white military people writing narratives of failure to justify removing them out of the standing army. So that's one. They realize like, one, we're going to be lied about and sort of like, and libeled. And then they also realize, and everything that we accomplish doesn't actually soften segregationist like opinion of us. It doesn't make white supremacists less committed to white supremacy. It incenses and it inflames them and makes them more murderous. And so when this happens again, like we're going to figure out how to make demands first before we offer ourselves over. And there's some people who will respond by just saying, look, I'm going to, I'm going to work within my community to build my community. I'm going to fly. I'm not going to run at things head on. Like when I say that, I'm thinking specifically of Ernest McKissick in Asheville, Floyd McKissick's father, right? Who was basically like, I wanted to work with the Young Men's Institute and I just wanted to like make my community better. One could argue that again, a sense of kind of militancy of black pride of what have you is something that he instilled generationally in his family and it manifests 
in later generations and in his children. But then there are people who come home and they're so upset and so like needing an outlet for like actively pursuing change that they look for an organization, the NAACP, but even more the UNIA, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, it explodes, right? And there's a way that the trappings, the aesthetic trappings of Garvey, the organization, the sort of like paramilitary, like, like sort of, I don't know, haze of it all really appeals to people who are coming out of the military and for whom that, um, for whom that has given them meaning, right? Um, And because the sort of Garveyite women are also organized and strong and visible, it provides a space and an outlet for black women for whom this military period was formative as well. And I think the UNIA appeals a lot because the other thing that you see people thinking about coming out of World War I is, what does it mean to be part of a broader community of Black people, right? Like, what is my connection to um, Afro-descended people around the world? The UNIA becomes a place for people to sort that out. And then you have radicals, right? So there's some people who are going to go, like, hard left into organizations like the African Blood Brotherhood and then from there into the Communist Party. When we think about teaching American history in high school in particular, there's always that unit on World War One. If there were one or two things that you would want students to take away from uh, this introduction to this aspect of the American past, specifically as it relates to African-Americans, what would those one or two things be? I would want students to think about how the, the domestic freedom struggle and the war shaped one another. So I'd want students to think about how African-Americans tried to use the international stage as a theater for domestic battles over how far citizenship would, might extend, right? And whether Black people can claim it. So we can also have them think about the ways that the sort of black freedom struggle and other kind of struggles against against empire and, and racialized power, how there's resonance across them. You know, I think it's important that we talk about Woodrow Wilson. And I think that Wilsonianism remains so very current in terms like in contemporary debates about what U.S. foreign policy should look like the idea of self-determination, of democracy as something that Americans are willing to sort of pursue and, and protect. The question that I'm always left with is whether or not that idea can have meaning and promise that is bigger than the man who produced it. I don't think that it is controversial. I don't think it's debatable to say that Woodrow was a white supremacist. I mean, I think to say that of a Southern-born Democrat in the early 20th century is about as remarkable as saying that, like, I don't know, it rains sometimes, right? People always want to push against that, to, like, argue with it, to say things like, Wilson was a man of his time, to which I always say, like, okay, but there were lots of people in that time. Du Bois was a man of his time. Ida B. Wells was a woman of her time. Like, Wilson didn't have to think the way that he did, even if so much of his experience pushed him to do so. He had other voices. He had other perspectives offered to him and who were willing to to debate him on it. He was the president who oversaw the embedding of segregation in Washington. It had There had been some um, before him under Taft, but it was extensive, it was systematic, it reached into um, employing people in the civil service, right? Like the expansion and the and the systemization of it during the Woodrow Wilson administration was striking and had long-reaching consequences. 
Wilson was a progressive, capital P, right? Appropriate to the era. But Wilson was a progressive who, with close ties and affinities to Southern progressives, and he appointed many of them into his cabinet and into um, influential positions in D.C. Being a Southern progressive meant that among the many questions and issues and, you know, social matters that you, that they set about to solve was the Negro problem, right? They saw race relations and framed it as a Negro problem. And segregation was their modern response to the Negro problem. So in bringing those folks to office and empowering them, they were bringing that kind of set of solutions um, and, and practices to DC. African-Americans saw great danger in this, right? You'd see headlines that say things like the South is in the saddle again. Like they really see this as Jim Crow gone national and their concern is about the ways that it could go from there to becoming international. Keep in mind that it's during the first Wilson administration that the U.S. invades Haiti and then remains for two decades, right? It invades the Democratic Republic. They see Jim Crow as having wings, African-Americans do, and they're worried that it's about to take off. So the coming of World War I, among the many things that it does, is to sort of offer an opportunity either for African-Americans, their allies, to disrupt this expansion of Jim, Jim Crow or for Jim Crow's defenders and advocates to see to its expansion. And so one of the questions going into World War I for all of these folks is like, what's going to happen next? Um, and what will the role of this president be and how will we use the president and his rhetoric and his attitudes and all of these other things to like bring about the next thing adrian lance smith thank you so much for sharing these tremendous insights with us you are very welcome thank you so much for having me on absolutely Adrian Lentz-Smith is an associate professor and associate chair in the Department of History at Duke University. She is the author of Freedom Struggles, African Americans in World War I from Harvard University Press. Dr. Lentz-Smith is also the host of The Ethics of Now, a community conversation series from the Kennan Institute for Ethics at Duke. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can keep an eye out for her recent interview with Questlove. Teaching Hard History is a podcast from Learning for Justice the education arm of the Southern Poverty Law Center, helping teachers and schools prepare students to be active participants in a diverse democracy. Learning for Justice provides free teaching materials about slavery, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and more. You can find award-winning films and classroom-ready texts at learningforjustice.org. Most students leave high school without an understanding of the Jim Crow era and its continuing relevance. This podcast is part of an effort to change that, in our fourth season, we put Jim Crow under the spotlight, examining its history and lasting impact. Thanks to Dr. Len Smith for sharing her insights with us. This podcast was produced by Mary Quintus and senior producer Shay Shackelford. Russell Gregg is our associate producer. Music Reconstructed is produced by Barrett Golding. And Corey Collins provides content guidance. Amelia Gregg is our intern. Kate Schuster is the series creator. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFont. And our managing producer is Miranda LaFond. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues and let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We always appreciate your feedback. I'm Dr. Bethany Jay, professor of history at Salem State University, and your host for Teaching Hard History.